Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Um, it was a worshipful experience to uh, get to prepare this uh, message this morning. In fact, I couldn't stop crying yesterday as I finished my sermon. I texted Bill Burns and said, I'm no Bill Burns, but I can't stop crying. <laughs> and he said, he replied back, my work here is done. So there you go. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to John uh, 753, and we're going to be looking at 753 through 811 this morning. <clears throat> you know, my son Eli, um, he loves to laugh. He is a practical joker. Uh, he loves to play jokes, is always thinking about a joke to tell or something like that. One of the things he really likes to do is play with his phone. He's got a, a fat face app, <clears throat> and he likes to go around and take a picture of somebody and then it blows it up like huge and makes it look really silly. And so he's always taking these pictures and he's bringing me, he, you know, loves to get his siblings and take pictures of them and then blow their faces up and he'll come show me the picture and I, I, I normally laugh at that. Uh, and then one day he took a picture of me and showed me the picture of my face all distorted and blown up and suddenly it wasn't so funny. Suddenly, Eli was no longer allowed to use the Fat Face app anymore. It was funny when it was other people. It wasn't so funny when it was me. And I started to think, you know, how often do I distort what other people think or what other people do to make myself look better? Far too often. In our passage today, Jesus um, we see that Jesus doesn't have a distorted view of who we are. Jesus actually sees us quite clearly. So as we come to read God's word this morning, I, just, I want you to kind of wrestle with that a little bit. That Jesus doesn't see fat face app in you. No, he sees you who you are. It's a little unnerving, and I hope that it is a little bit unnerving. Let me pray for us real quick, and we'll read our passage. Lord God, we do come to your word this morning, and we're thankful that you've spoken to us, that you've not left us alone, that you've sent Jesus to be uh, our Savior. And as we study this morning, we pray that the, the gaze of Jesus would be upon us, that your Spirit would show us our neediness, that it would expose darkness in our lives. We would then see the light of the gospel that we would hear the words of Jesus, his grace and mercy to us. We would be strengthened to live lives for you. So bless our time. Be at work in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, let's print it out in your bulletin. I don't know what page, but uh, let's stand together as we read God's word. John 7, 53 through 8, 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. 
Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, sin no more. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. As we look at this uh, passage this morning, I want to look at it under three headings. The wickedness of sin, the wisdom of Jesus, and the wonder of grace. The wickedness of sin. We see that Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's, he's, he's going to the temple and he's teaching. And crowds come and, and, and gather to him. That's a common occurrence. Jesus drew many crowds and Jesus is in the middle of teaching and all of a sudden the scribes and Pharisees show up with this woman and they bring her into the midst of all this. And, and what do they say? You know, hey, teacher, this woman's guilty of adultery. Adultery is a big deal. Big deal in our day. Big deal, Jesus' day as well. It was a sin, but in Jesus' day it was a capital offense, punishable by death. The thing was, around the time of Jesus, to actually be charged with adultery was tricky business. You couldn't just say, I think those people are engaged in adultery. You couldn't just see this guy walking into someone's house and say, huh, Wonder what he's doing in that woman's house. I wonder what's going on in there. Maybe they're okay. Maybe it's adultery. Let's bring charges. No, you couldn't do that. You actually, the only way to, according to rabbinical tradition at the time, the only way to be convicted of adultery was to be caught in the act by more than one witness. <laughs> caught in the act by more than one witness. So you can imagine it. Pretty hard to convict someone of adultery. Um, and it, you know, it wasn't after, it was, I'm telling you, it was, it was in the midst of the sin. So the scribes and Pharisees, they come to Jesus and they say, we have a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Justice is required. What are you going to do? Do you condemn her? That's what the law says. According And according to the law, Deuteronomy 22, Leviticus 20, the punishment for that kind of behavior was stoning to death. Come on, Jesus. What do you say? What should her punishment be? Can you imagine the scene? There's crowds of people, and these scribes and Pharisees come bringing this woman shame and disgrace, and she's dragged before Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but this whole situation just kind of doesn't feel right. It kind of stinks. And 
I kind of tend to think that this was probably a setup. These guys weren't really interested in justice. Yeah, she was involved in adultery, but this was probably something that was planned in advance. I mean, how do you explain that there's multiple witnesses that just happen to be in the room seeing this sin take place? And we know that the teachers of the law aren't really concerned with justice or righteousness. Because who do they bring? The woman, right? If she was caught in the act of adultery, and if she's really guilty of adultery, two to tango, where's the man? Only the woman is brought before Jesus. kind of hard to believe that the man somehow slipped away. And also in verse 6, we see that this was probably a setup because they said this to what? To test Jesus. They're looking for ways to, to, to trap him. And this isn't the first time. This is kind of the, the, the way that the scribes and Pharisees and the teachers have behaved. They, they're trying to put Jesus in a situation that they think that they can trap him in. And there's other places, you know, that, that this has happened. Remember one day, um, he's, he's teaching and the, the question comes up to him from the teachers of the law. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? You know, <laughs> we got him now. Nobody likes paying taxes. And so if he says, yes, pay your taxes, then the crowds aren't going to like that because he's siding with Rome. If he says no, well, then we can go to Rome and say, hey, this guy's saying we don't have to pay our taxes, right? What does Jesus do? He grabs the coin, looks at the inscription and says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to the Lord what is the Lord's. And they walk away mad and disgusted. Another one, this is probably my favorite one. The Sadducees come to Jesus and they, they bring a quite, just this ridiculous story, um, about, you know, this, this woman, um, who's, who's married and the man dies. So she marries the brother and the brother dies and she basically goes through the whole family and they all die. And then they say, okay, so Jesus, who, who's, Wife, is she going to be in the resurrection? You know, the irony about the whole question is, it's the Sadducees. They don't even believe in the resurrection. And yet they're, they're just, you know, I mean, it's, it's, ugh. They're not interested in the answer. They're interested in testing Jesus. That's what's going on here. The wickedness of this. These guys are not interested in justice. They're not interested in righteousness. I mean, think about what these guys are willing to do. Have this woman killed just to prove a point. Just so that they can get rid of Jesus. Yuck. Do you see the wickedness of that? It's pretty bad. Now here's the deal. I see a lot of the scribes and the Pharisees in me. How often do I look at someone else Say, you know what? I'm better than they are. I would never do that. I look at someone's mistakes and, and it makes me feel better about myself. I would never get on a plane if I'd been exposed to Ebola. Come on. What's that lady thinking? Right? I felt that. Or, what are they doing letting their kids go to school? Oh my goodness, my kids are at that school. 
I gotta go get my kids out. What are they thinking? I felt that. I didn't get my kids out though. But you feel it. That's, that's what we do. It's even worse than that though, I think. In my heart. How often do I manipulate God's word just to prove a point? How often do I manipulate God's word to make it say what I want to say? Or, I'm a seminary student, how often do I engage in theological banter at the seminary and use God's word to make someone else look like a fool? Far too often. Use God's word to shame someone. To make myself look good. Do you feel the wickedness of sin? That's what these guys are doing. And I, I relate pretty well to these guys. The good news is, sin is wicked, but Jesus is wise. And he sees it. So here's Jesus, he's standing here, and it appears that he's stuck. You know, I can just see the scribes and Pharisees standing there, you know, rubbing their hands together. <laughs> we got him now. What's he going to do? You see, if, if he agrees with them and says, yeah, stone her, they can run off to Rome and say, hey, Jesus is saying we can stone people. We can, you know, exert capital punishment. Oh, wait, we're not allowed to do that. That's a Roman thing. Or, on the other hand, if he says no, let her go, they can go to the Sanhedrin and say, man, this crazy guy, he's totally disqualifying God's law. We got to get rid of him. All right. So Jesus is in this this, uh, predicament again. So what do they do? They think they have him. And then Jesus does something that's great. Does something they don't expect. He sits on the ground, he starts writing in the dirt. Don't you want to know what Jesus wrote in the dirt? Pages and pages have been written about what Jesus wrote in the dirt. And I've read these pages and pages and pages, and I thought, you know what? We don't know. I'm glad we don't know. Because <laughs> can you imagine if we knew what Jesus wrote in the dirt? What would we do with that? I mean, you'd have churches named like Jesus wrote in the dirt, you know, I mean, this is, this, we know what he actually wrote. We know, ooh, we got it. This is, we would like elevate it. That's what I would do because my heart is that bad. We don't know. The favorite idea that I, I gleaned was, you know, that may have been symbolic of, of what we read in Jeremiah 17, which it's a pretty sobering passage talking about the deceitfulness of our heart and when we turn away from God, that you know, our, our names are written in the dust. Kind of communicating, the scribes and Pharisees have turned away from God. Here's the deal. We don't know what Jesus wrote in the dirt, but we do know he wrote something, and they keep pressing him. They, you know, what are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? And he stands up and he says these famous words. These are probably words you know. You love these words. You've heard these. Our our culture loves this. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And he sits down and starts writing in the dirt again. Let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. See, this answer is brilliant. Jesus is not going to get caught up in the shenanigans of these guys. He sees the malice in their heart. And in his wisdom, in his understanding of the law, he's actually able to kind of get out of their little trap. He says, you want to uphold the law? You can't handle the law. You want to talk about the law? Let's look at the law. You see, on the one hand, Jesus affirms the law of Moses here. He affirms that the law requires that she be put to death. You know, there's no evidence here indicating that the charge against this woman is false. She deserved to be stoned. But what Jesus is saying is, none of you are qualified to be the judge. Because according to Deuteronomy 19, if a witness to a crime has malicious intentions, that person is liable to the same punishment. See what Jesus is doing there? Really? You want to throw the first stone? How's your heart? What's going on with the malicious intent intentions? I think that's the point of verse 7. They had sinned in their lack of love for this girl. What are they doing? They're using this horrible situation just to make a point, just to trap Jesus, just to get rid of him, bring judgment on Christ. They're willing her to, they're willing to let her die just to win an argument. Get rid of Jesus. Jesus in his wisdom reveals they did not love the law of Moses or else they would have brought the man too, right? They're not interested in justice. And Jesus basically says, if your intentions are pure in this matter, if you're a faithful witness to this, 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 this sin, if there's no malicious intent in your heart, go ahead, cast the first stone. He exposes their sin. One by one they leave. Here's the deal for us, I think. Are you willing to let Jesus examine your life? Are you willing to let him expose the sin, the malice that's in your heart? Even more importantly than that, how are you going to respond to that? You're going to be like the teachers of the law. What do they do? When the gaze of Jesus came on them, when he exposed their sin, what did they do? They ran away. Do you run away? Do you run away when your sin starts to get exposed? I make excuses. I run away. I justify myself. No, Jesus, you got it wrong, man. I, trust me, I didn't mean it like that. <clears throat> Honey, I didn't mean to say that. That's not what I meant. Yeah, it is. Do we run away? If you do run away, 
which I'm prone to do. Brings us to our third point. The wonder of grace. We need to be captured by the wonder of grace. Jesus looks up and sees this woman all alone. He says, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one. And Jesus says something that should shock you. Neither do I condemn you. What's surprising is that she's guilty. Every reason to believe she actually committed the sin that she's accused of. And Jesus is saying, I don't condemn you. Why? How can he do that? Is he just going easy on this lady? Is he saying, you know, I feel pretty good about just taking care of the scribes and Pharisees there. I think I'll go easy on you today. I just won that battle. And so you're free to go. Did he feel sorry for her? Man, this was just a bad day. These guys, whoa, what are they thinking? Bring that, they shouldn't have done that. Man, it's not her fault, right? No, I don't think he's doing that either. She, you know, yeah, she committed sin, but these guys are way, way worse. So let's just let it go. You can sing it, I don't. Right? That's, I mean, that's, no, he doesn't let it go. How can Jesus say he doesn't condemn her? And because Jesus is going to go to the cross. Jesus is going to go to the cross and take her sins. Yeah, she's a sinner. Jesus is going to go and take that nastiness. The nastiness of all his people. Jesus is going to go and be the, uh, the, the, the subject of public mockery. He's going to be the one that takes the punishment that she deserves for her sin. Jesus is innocent. And he will take her condemnation. See, Jesus went to the cross. He paid that penalty for our sins. He got the punishment that we deserve. There's more to it than that, though. It's not just that our sins are forgiven. And it's not just that this woman, no condemnation for her. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's a verse I need to hear every single day, several times throughout the day. This is, this is my, this is my go-to. And I need to hear it right now. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ was made sin. Christ didn't know sin. He was made sin. So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. One of my favorite classes, okay, Dr. Grop's not here, so I can say this. One of my favorite classes is, I, I love Dr. Grop's class, but one of my favorite classes I'm taking right now is, uh, Redemption Accomplished. And, uh, so here's your, your big theological term from, you know, seminary. Double imputation. Here's, here's the point. At the cross, my sin is imputed to Christ. They're counted as Christ's sins, and he pays for them. And at the same time, 
Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. When God sees me, the believer, he doesn't see my disobedience or sin. He sees the perfect obedience of Christ. So that's who we are in Christ. So Jesus can say, no condemnation. No, I don't condemn you. Because I'm going to pay for your sins. I am going to make you righteous. I'm going to make you a child of God. I'm going to restore you. But he doesn't stop there. Neither do I condemn you. Tell also tells the woman, now go and sin no more. You see, as those who are declared righteous by God, we are called to live in righteousness, to walk in obedience, to live in holiness. So the question is, how do we do that? Right? Is it, okay, I'm, I'm forgiven of my sin, now just go. Sin no more. How do we actually get the power to sin no more? How do we, how do we get that sin uprooted from our lives? I think the only way that sin can be rooted out of our lives is through exposure to the amazing love of Christ. Sin begins to lose its power as we remember that we are debtors to His love, to His grace. It's only by recognizing the amazing grace and love of Christ for you that you will be able to live a life of love and obedience for Christ. Sin loses its power as you see the beauty of the cross, as you gaze at what Christ has done. Your sin begins to look ugly compared to the beauty of Christ's love. Do you see the beauty of the cross? It's the love of Jesus that changes our hearts. That's the message we need to be saying. We need to be saying 2 Corinthians 5.21. We need to be believing that. No, God made Jesus. He didn't know sin and God made him sin for me so that I can be the righteousness of God. I'm a debtor to mercy alone. The love of Jesus will change your hearts. You will be able to Walk in newness of life. You will be able to go and sin no more the more you see God's amazing love for you in Christ. I'll tell you a story about Shy Johnson. She was a high school uh, student in Queen Creek, Arizona. Shy was picked on uh, by her classmates. She was pushed in the halls, and kids were always calling her stupid making fun of her. She was, she was bullied. What makes it even more disgusting is that Shai was a 10th grader at this time and her brain only works at a third grade level because of a genetic defect. She'll probably only live to be about 25 years old because of this birth defect. And while her brain only may have operated at a third grade level, 
She knew enough to feel the hate. She knew enough to feel how she was being bullied. And she'd come home at night at the start of the school year and she was crying. She just cried. She was upset. And her mom says that permanent smile that was on her face was gone. That gleam in her eye. My daughter was gone. I didn't know who she was anymore. So she reaches out to school. Something's going on with my daughter at school. She's getting bullied. Teachers, principals, administrators, help me. No, she's fine. We can't do anything about it. We don't know what's going on. She's desperate. So she kind of takes matters into her own hands, and she reaches out to the high school quarterback. And this guy was, like, Joe Cool. And he actually had, had a relationship with, with Shy, uh, earlier, a few years earlier. He had, uh, escorted her to, uh, a, a Special Olympics, uh, program. So the mom just kind of reached out to, to this, this, this boy and said, um, put your ear to the ground. His name's Carson Jones. Put your ear to the ground. Give me some names. I'm gonna take care of this. But uh, Carson Jones wasn't going to play that game. He wasn't going to be her mole. Um, you know what he did instead? Every day at lunch, the special ed kids would eat lunch in a different room, and he went and got shy and brought her to his table, the cool kids' table, the football player's table. And she sat next to the football player. And then... They, the football team just kind of rallied around her. And they made sure that wherever she went, if she was walking in the halls, a football player was with her. Nobody's going to mess with her. In class, the classes that she was in with them, they sat next to her. In fact, one class, there were a bunch of football players. They put her on the front row, and they all sat behind her. Bring it. The mom didn't really know what was going on, but she noticed a change in Shai's life. The smile was back. And she said, what happened? What, why are you, what, what has changed? You're no longer crying. You are happy. And she goes, she, she calls the football players her boys. She goes, mom, cause every day I get to, I, I eat lunch with my boys. I go to class with my boys. My boys are protecting me. Here's the best part. The football player's family, the Jones family, they're sitting around the dinner table one night, and uh, the mom um, asks her son Carson, she said, this is great. I'm glad you guys are reaching out to, to shy, but you're a senior, Carson. What's going to happen after you leave? Without missing a beat, his little brother, who was shy's age, said, don't worry, Mom, I got this. We're going to take care of her. Isn't that beautiful? You see, Jesus didn't leave us alone. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And he has sent the Spirit into our life to remind us of who we are in Christ, to enable us to walk in his grace. 
Isn't that beautiful? Jesus came and lived and died for you. He took your shame. He took your sin. He paid the penalty for it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he sent the Spirit to set you free so that you can go and sin no more. Let's pray. Lord God, we are overwhelmed by the beauty of the gospel. We need it. We need to know that you love us because our sin is great. Lord, we thank you that Jesus knows our sin far better than we do. And yet he still came and died for us. Help us to believe that there is no condemnation because of what Christ has done. Help us to be ravished by the beauty of the cross. Help us to hate sin as we see the beauty of Jesus. We thank you for the Spirit that has set us free. We pray that we would be strengthened to live lives, seek to glorify you. We thank you for our catechism question this morning for the hope of a day when we will truly be saved to sin no more. Come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. Amen.